When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. What's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. We have an excellent show for you today. Based on an article that was posted on projectupland.com, I believe late last week, titled The Art of Rough Grouse Hunting with a Flushing Dog. We will get to that and our guest very shortly, but first I wanted to mention a couple things, a couple developments uh, via Project Upland. Number one, first and foremost... Project Upland currently running a Kickstarter campaign for the first book release to come from Project Upland. It is a bird hunting anthology volume one. There is a Kickstarter campaign that is live right now where you can go reserve your copy of the book and contribute uh, to various levels above and beyond to help us fund this project. We really appreciate your support and believe that you will be very pleased with uh, with the end result. It, the book will contain all of the Project Upland content, quality content that you have come to expect. Uh, amazing photography, excellent writing from a whole host of, of contributors, both, both on the writing side and the photography side. It's going to be a, a visually stunning book and uh, the, the writing will the writing will meet that level as well. So Go check out the Kickstarter campaign for the Project Upland book. Easiest way to find it, probably kickstarter.com, search Project Upland, or you can just go to the Project Upland website, projectupland.com. It's pinned to the top. 
same thing at the Facebook page. The Kickstarter campaign should be pinned to the top of that. So check that out. Secondly, a uh, little gear spotlight. Also an article on projectupland.com for uh, Sage and Breaker, and specifically the Sage and Breaker gun mat. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you wanna, you're going to want to check it out. Um, if you're not familiar with Sage and Breaker at all, they started uh, a few years ago at least, and really uh, <clears throat> kind of put a little different spin on the, uh, I don't I'll say boar snake, although, but I believe that's another brand's name for it. But it's a you know a gun cleaning tool that is it's a snake that runs through the gun barrels, and uh, it's got a wire brush at the head of it, and it runs through, and it's just a really quick and easy way to clean your gun. So those are available from Sage of Breaker. But what the gear spotlight really uh, highlights is the gun mat, which is an absolutely beautiful piece uh, for any Upland Hunters collection. With Christmas coming right around the corner, this would be a nice gift item uh, for the uh, for the uh, the high class Upland Hunter or for somebody that's just likes nice things. The Sage and Breaker gun mat fills that void. It it goes above and beyond uh, most gun cleaning mats that you're going to see, uh, but it's also I, I would call it feature rich because. While it is, it's extremely well crafted. It's made out of leather, wool, and canvas. It looks really cool. It looks like it would fit, uh, you know, on the shelf next to a fine double gun. But it'll also look just as good, you know, in a pack or in the back of a pickup truck. I mean, this place belongs where your guns belong, and that's that's kind of probably the best way to put it. Uh, very quality, quality mat. Uh, high quality materials. It rolls up and it buckles. So it packs away nicely. It's really easy to throw in the truck or wherever you're going to take it. I, I was fortunate enough to get my hands on one. It's uh, it's very cool. It's it's kind of a, at the end of a hunt, it's fun to roll it out and put a couple guns on it as you clean them and sit around and maybe uh, sip a glass of whiskey and, and tell some stories about the day's hunt. It's just kind of one of those things that uh, it looks good on the center of a table, uh, on the bed of a pickup truck, kind of anywhere you have it. It's a, it's a really cool gun mat. And like I said, it goes above and beyond what, what you would normally expect out of a gun mat. But uh, if it's your thing, it's your thing, and you're probably going to love it. So check that out, Sage and Breaker. All right, enough of that. Let's get to today's show. Uh, on today's show, I interviewed uh, a guy that I've gotten to know over the past few years. He is a uh, passionate, serious rough grouse hunter upland bird hunter he's done quite a bit um, he's been hunting rough grouse for a long time and he hunts them with flushing dogs um, he's been very successful he's learned a lot over the years and I, I believe a lot of that comes through in the article that he wrote on projectupland.com so definitely check that out the art of rough grouse hunting with a flushing dog uh, his name is fritz heller and we covered a bunch of stuff in today's show about uh, the 2017 grouse hunting season uh, hunting grouse with flushing dogs naturally. We talked a lot about cover and technique and things that you could definitely apply in, in your next hunt if your season's not over or as you're dreaming about next season. So with all that said, I want to jump right into it. Let's get to today's show and uh, we'll welcome on to the Project Upland podcast, Fritz Heller. All right, Fritz Heller, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you doing tonight, man? I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's our our pleasure. Uh, happy to have you on the show. I think we'll uh, we'll have an interesting conversation. 
Uh, I know we're, I know you're in Michigan, but uh, whereabouts in Michigan are you? I don't even, I don't even know where you live. I'm in the northern lower peninsula, uh, in the northwest corner, uh, okay. kind of in what I would call the lake effect snow belt. Yeah, which so, uh, as uh, we discussed, you're, uh, you're you're getting some of that lake effect snow right now. Yeah, we're uh, you know our December season. This is one of those years where we just won't get to hunt because uh, we've got too much snow. It's overall it's good for our grouse because they this is you know we've got 12 to 20 inches depending on where you are of really good fluffy snow roosting snow. So that's not a bad thing coming off a uh, what I would call a disappointing 2017 grouse season. Well, that's uh, that's a that's a good segue. I was uh, I was absolutely going to ask you about it. Let's let's use that as kind of a jump off point. Uh, I guess for the listeners, I, I, I will have talked about this a little bit in the intro, but you're uh, you've been grouse hunting a long time, and and we'll talk a little bit about your backstory, but. Um, as you alluded to, give us give us as an experienced grouse hunter, somebody that's been doing it for a long time and that does it a lot. Uh, give us your your sort of uh, over overview of of the 2017 season. Uh, you know, a little bit more detail than what you just did. Well, I, I think you can sum up the 2017 season as a, a correction year. Uh, if it could have gone wrong weather wise, it went wrong. I hunted uh, five or six, probably six counties in the lower peninsula of Michigan. I hunted two counties in the western upper peninsula. And I hunted all over Minnesota for a week. And it was not good anywhere outside of a few pockets here or there. Um, And we were all really excited based on drumming counts in Minnesota, drumming counts in Wisconsin. Michigan doesn't do drumming counts anymore due to a Freedom of Information Act issue. But, it, you know, the cycle kind of moves west to east. It's my belief, at least here in Michigan, that our cycle bottomed out in 2015. I think in 2015 I moved uh, somewhere in the below three grouse an hour. And that was coming off that was coming off a pretty good run between I'm going to say 09 and and 14, but you could see it tick down in 13. You could see it tick down again in 14, 15. Really felt was really tough. Uh, and then 16, I I went up, uh, you know, uh, you know three pushing almost 3.8 birds an hour. And and when I say this, I count all my time grouse hunting. And we were optimistic that coming into this year that we'd, you know, maybe see a leveling or at least as good, if not a little bit better. And it never materialized. And I'm, I moved less grouse, uh, this season per hour than I moved in 2015. The contributing factors in, in my opinion, and I'm not a biologist, are the extremely wet conditions we had in June late May and June, including a couple of very cold nights right around the critical uh, peak of the hatch, and coupled that with uh, really a pretty mild winter. I think a lot of hens nested. It's been my theory that when you get a really normal winter or you get normal spring rains, it floods the low areas in the woods, 
and the hens don't nest down there. When you get a dry winter and not a lot of spring rains like we had last year, the, the hens can nest anywhere they want, and then you get a bunch of May and June rain that floods the seasonal, you know, the woods that hold seasonal water, floods those nests out. And, and then you got birds that are trying to re-nest. You bleed that into uh, what I'm going to call the hottest September and October I can ever remember uh, for hunting conditions. I, I had a stretch in September where I took seven days off, and there were stretches in October where I had three, four, five days in a row off, it felt like. So when you lose, I'm going to say I lost 14 days of hunting to heat uh, during this last uh, hunting season and that's that's frustrating and then when you're trying to hunt when it's warm it, it's just not nearly as effective the birds don't need to move they don't need to feed as much but I'd say my adult ratio was around 40 or 45 percent of the birds I killed were adults and in a good year you know when you kill when you kill an adult you're like oh man look at this big adult Mm-hmm. And because the, mm-hmm. because pushing 85, 90, 95% of your take is this year's birds, it just tells me we had a catastrophic hatch. Yeah. So I think, we could. Uh, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Fritz. Yeah, I just, you know, just, just back to the snow, we could really use a normal good winter of fluffy light snow with no thaws. Uh, they just allow the birds that are out there to have protection, uh, the snow roosts, and then we could really use a nice mild May and June, and they can rebound really quick. So that, that's, that's the hope. Yep, absolutely. I think uh, there's probably probably a lot of uh, a lot of northern, uh, at least Great Lakes grouse hunters nodding their heads as as uh, you detail your season. I I had uh, very similar experiences myself, and and I don't need to I don't need to go into it. I've kind of talked about it at length here on the podcast. But one thing I I'm curious. I know you you hopped around a little bit. Um, you know we 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 did really have the the warm September and October. Um, did you see any improvement or not necessarily improvement but just changes in bird numbers or uh dynamics of the things that you're looking at as the season progressed at all and into november because we kind of had a nice november and early december uh that i think extended some of the prime conditions at least around here uh that it made my season feel a little bit better towards the end but overall was still kind of much what you're describing no uh, to be honest with you, I did. I, 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 and I've had those seasons. I, that's how I would characterize uh, 13 and 14, where it was really tough in the beginning. You know, you can feel the cycle starting to drop, and then all of a sudden you get some nice weather, and the birds are all of a sudden where you want to hunt them. And, and that's vital is having birds where you want to hunt them. There's lots of grouse that live in cedar swamps that you – can go try and hunt it's just not very enjoyable i never saw it really get any better sure i'd go to an area and have a day or two uh rick and i had a couple of good hunts but you start to you start to feel bad you know so all of a sudden we move 12 birds and we kill six of them and that has more to do with the fact that it rained two days ago and now it's 41 degrees and the sun's out and it's November. That, that doesn't, that's, 
you know, sure, we the hunting was better, but we moved. We only moved twelve birds. You know, on, on a day that you should move thirty, and I never saw it get better. I hunted hard November fourteenth because I kind of felt like we weren't going to get a December season, and uh, I hunted uh, seven spots. It moved, uh, I had five flushes, and one of them was a reflush, so I moved four different birds, and three were in one cover. That's that's pretty slim picking. The weather was pretty good that day. So I, I would not say that, I, I was optimistic, like you said, that if we could get a stretch of cooler, consistent, you know, bare November-type weather, that some birds would materialize. That just wasn't the case. I hunted two days in December. I think we moved eight birds the the one day in December, and I moved one bird the other afternoon in December, and then the snow started to pile in in kind of my area. Yeah, I I think um, I like how you described it because as I as I think about some of the late season experiences that I had, it was we did have a couple of those you know the stars aligned on on Saturday and Sunday, you know being a weekend warrior that kind of thing. I we had some crappy cool temps during the week and maybe some rain and then you know the last weekend I was out both days it just it was early December and it was near 40 degrees and the sun was out and and you know that those birds were you know they were probably holed up the couple days before and they just happened to be where 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 we wanted to hunt them that day so yeah it it made it, it those days were good hunting but again that's that doesn't change change the number of birds that were there for sure right so, All right, Fritz. Well, let's uh, let's let's rewind just a little bit. Um, I want to ask you uh, something I've been trying to ask everybody that comes on here. Uh, if you could just sort of share your upland hunting story and uh, and let us know how you got into it, you know, from the very beginning and and how you wound up being such a passionate upland bird hunter. Well, I, I grew up in a I grew up in a household with a father that was a uh, diehard Southern Michigan pheasant hunter, and uh, you know I remember as a kid my dad getting home after dark after work uh, with the dogs and uh, and pheasants. I call it the Red Coleman Cooler story. You know the Red Coleman Cooler lived in the back of my father's suburban, and it came home with. Uh, steelhead in the spring and it came home with roosters in the fall and I wanted to be a part of that and uh, I got to hunt some pheasants as a kid you know tagging along with my dad and in the family dogs um, I grew up with Labradors and uh, I got to do a lot of steelhead fishing with my father and then as we matured and uh, he was uh, coaching hockey and I was playing hockey and playing uh a lot of golf in the summer as you start to develop, you know, uh, specialize in sports in high school. There was less and less time for that. And uh, you go off to college and you can't really have a dog in college. Somehow my brother figured that out, but uh, <laughs> I, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to. And uh, so uh, I got home from uh, Guyton, Alaska in 2000 and uh, set my sights on finding a dog. And, uh, I found a litter I really liked in 2001, uh, or, or that winter. I got my first Labrador in the winter of 2001. And I was living, uh, west of Grand Rapids, Michigan and started doing a lot of pheasant hunting and started grouse hunting maybe 12 to 15 days a year. 
Um, and then I moved what I'm going to call up north. And I know you're familiar with that, uh, that concept of living up north. And uh, grouse were what was available. So I had a job and not a career. And I had a wife that was uh, heavy into graduate school and her residency. And I had a lot of time on my hands. And uh, I, I spent there, uh, you know, from I spent five or six years where I was in the woods, you know, 120 days a year between hunting and scouting and spring and training. And I just dove full, full on into it. And uh, we're really, really fortunate in the upper Great Lakes to have public land to pursue our passions. Ultimately, what turned me off from pheasant hunting was the private land aspects of it. And uh, it's very frustrating, uh, you know, having to gain private access or access to private land. So, yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of my, that's, that's a, a quick version of my hunting story. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm over in Minnesota, but, but similar story, you know, I, I grew up in Duluth, but, but lived in the cities for a while and moved back up North. And that's what we hunt up here is grouse and woodcock and, and, you know, the, the, Access to land. I mean, you can't say it enough. Access to public land and and being able to use the resource. That's it's a, it's an incredible opportunity and and certainly try every day not to take it for granted. What what's what's the breakdown of um, in your grouse hunting? Are you pretty much all public land? Do you hunt private at all? What, what's your breakdown? I uh, I do not hunt any private land. I uh, I don't have access to it. And to be honest with you, for the most part, where I go, the best uh, the best habitat resides on public land. And so it's being more actively managed uh, for forest and things like that. I and by public land, I mean I do hunt some commercial forest act lands, but I, I it's open to the public, so I consider right. that public land, even though it's privately owned. But State, federal, commercial forest act. Uh, you know, if I'm traveling in in Minnesota, there's is there county lands there? Yep. Or not? Yep. So I, you know, I'm hunting some county lands in Minnesota along with state and federal forests there. And uh, I've really become a grouse snob. Some of that is that my ability to travel out west for pheasants and the the great pheasant hunting I had in the late 90s and early 2000s coming off the 94-97 CRP bill evaporated uh, with the ethanol boom. And, and I miss that pheasant hunting more than I miss going uh, out to North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas. You know, I've hunted Iowa. Uh, but I, I just don't have the time to, to travel right now with my family schedule. And, and I I went to North Dakota last year and was kind of bored after a couple of days. And that's what really drives me about grouse is I, I haven't figured them out. Every day can be different, different places. Why are they in this spot and not in that spot? And how do I go about, you know, finding and killing birds in this spot? And, and public land offers that opportunity because there's so much of it in the upper Great Lakes. Yeah, I think that's, that's sure. kind of one of the. I think it's one of the neat things about grouse and woodcock hunting. Maybe it's maybe that's part of the allure is that 
the the best habitat does seem to be on public land, at least where you and I are at, and it it feels like it feels like a level playing field for everybody. You know, the the birds are out there for everybody to hunt them, and it's and it's really up to you to sort of figure it out as best you can, learn something new every day, find find you know a new cover every time you can, and 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 be able to hunt birds on public land. I, I think that's that's one of the unique things about it for sure. Right, and, and if I'm ever fortunate, I would love the opportunity to be able to buy enough land that I can set it up, you know, manage it for grouse grouse hunting. And uh, I haven't found that right piece of land yet, and I I'm probably haven't made enough money to pull the trigger on it when I do. But that's kind of a dream too, and. I wouldn't do it just to kill birds. I'd do it to have that place to go or that place to take a guest or a new hunter, that place to train your dog, you know, just just to have a place to call your own when you need it. Uh, but, you know, it would be really challenging to, to have enough private land to set up a grouse season for as much as I hunt. I'm, I'm envious of those that do get to hunt some private land, though. So... Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I I often have those same thoughts in that if if you because it really you cover you end up covering so much ground and you're always looking for something different. I mean the the whole private land thing for grouse hunting. I mean yes, it would be awesome to have a place in your back pocket, especially for like you said. I I mean it'd be great if you could go run run your dogs there and and get your dogs you know wild bird contacts and and uh, take a new hunter there or or something like that. Would be awesome, but uh, hopefully. Uh, if if all else you know works in our favor, we'll have public lands to hunt for a long time because uh, that's really the bread and butter of of grouse and woodcock hunting, and that's what we need. And, and I really feel in my travels over the last few years that the next twenty years has potential to be better than the last twenty years. And I've been doing this. 35 to 60 days a season for 16 straight seasons. And I, everywhere I go, even this season, everywhere I went from, from the lower peninsula, the upper peninsula to uh, family camping trips in the summer where I get to run dogs in different places to a, a big triangle in Minnesota. You know, we hunted from Duluth to Grand Rapids up to Orr this year. The habitat just seems like we're in that stage where there's a lot of habitat that's a little bit too young and a lot of habitat that's a little bit too old. And when you get, when you get in that cycle, and it, I'm not smart enough to be able to tell you exactly, my guess is that, you know, we're, the last three to seven years, we've had a lot of habitat reach a market age, and now they're able to cut it again. And I think they're doing a better job of how they lay out cuts, trying to even out age classes where we don't have a landscape that's just full of, you know, one age class for miles and miles. We start to build a, a, a landscape of uh, patchwork cuts where you, you might have a mile, but you've got three different age classes of cuts on that road to go alongside the other parts of the habitat, the non-saw habitat that goes into it. And so barring any uh, global warming parasite type trends, which 
I don't see coming, but you never know. Um, I, I really feel the next 20 is going to be better than the last 20. Well, I so, certainly hope I certainly hope you're right, and and it would be uh, it would be interesting to get maybe somebody that uh, that really had a, a firm grasp on on the timber harvesting injury industry to sort of if they could look at some of those long term trends of you know when the when the highest you know harvest rates were especially for software right. in the upper Great Lakes and that kind of stuff. But yeah, that would be cool. Well, hey, on that on that note, I want to transition a little bit. Um, you you uh, you recently wrote an article and it was posted on ProjectUpland.com, so people can go find it out there. Uh, it was about hunting rough grouse with flushing dogs, and so we want to talk about that a little bit tonight. And I think we'll transition into I, people can go read the article that's out there. It's it's uh, it's it's well written and it, it hits on a lot of great points. I feel like so we'll touch a few of them here um, as we're talking about cover. I've heard you. I've heard you talk about this before, whether it was on Facebook or Upland Journal or something. Uh, cover types. You mentioned linear cover types, food sources, and edges, meaning three different cover types. Go into those a little bit and, and tell us what you mean by that. Okay. Well, edge cover is is simply some form of defined edge, be it a two track or a road that allows sunlight in on the edge. And we've all read in every grouse book ever written that, you know, bird, you know, grouse are birds of the edge. And so that edge can be made up of anything. It can be a road that meets a cut. It can be a river that has, uh, you know, honeysuckle and dogwood growing along it. It can be, it can be where, Aspen meets uh, an alder run, so you get an edge there. So when I'm talking about edge cover, I'm talking about some form of break or transition where one age class of, of uh, aspen or ironwood or oak or beech meets another age class, uh, and you have two different age classes, that edge there. The, the key is sunlight penetrating it and growing more ground cover beneath the stem density, whatever the species is, it's making up the stem density. And so then you get more food coming in, you get more stem density, more ground cover, gives birds more security. That's what I'm talking about, edge, linear cover. Uh, linear cover is a little bit more defined. When I'm talking about linear cover, I'm tar- talking about targeting specific Linear cover, say there's a creek that winds, say there's an alder run that winds, a dogwood run, uh, you know, that's, that's growing in a lowland area, some form of linear cover that's concentrating birds in a winding path straight. I, I, uh, I use one of my absolute favorite spots on earth. Is a cover we call lion kugels, and uh, I pulled in there when I was young, and I was scouting one summer, and it is it is non-traditional looking grouse habitat. There is essentially a hedge that grows for about a half a mile, and that hedge is anywhere from five to twenty yards wide. And on one side is a field. On the other side of it is kind of a lowland seasonal swamp. And uh, 
classic linear cover. The birds are going to be in this strip, so to speak. You know, you've got a fairway on a golf course, and then you've got the rough on the sides. Linear cover being, we want to hunt that fairway. And with flushing dogs, we've got to take the flushing dog to the birds instead of the dog, like a, a traditional pointing breed that runs bigger, taking us to the birds. And we just put the dog in the absolute best cover where it can succeed. And its job is to find every bird in front of us, don't let us walk by any, and then produce them for the gun, however that may be. And then when I go to the third cover type, I'm going to call them food traps. And those food traps could be anywhere that the birds are headed to at a certain time of day to feed. Grouse with a full crop are easier to kill than grouse with an empty crop. They fly a little bit slower. Uh, They take a little bit more time getting off the ground. And so we're targeting areas that are recruiting birds into them to feed on a specific food source. Sometimes those spots can be uh, half an acre, and sometimes those spots are, you know, are bigger. Sometimes it's a trail with clover growing on it. And, uh, but that's what we're targeting when we talk about food spots or food traps. Um, here in Michigan, we have a lot of oil and gas exploration, so that creates a lot of forest openings. And a lot of times those forest openings will start to grow fruit-bearing shrubs and tree species, clover, those areas. So those become a food trap. Yeah, that's very uh, that's that's cool. I've uh, I I actually have, have uh, experienced that a little bit, and I've been out to Michigan a couple times and uh, hunting with uh, with Jay Dowd. Uh, I recall being in a cover right next to a couple of you know old oil derricks, and and there there's some pretty good cover right right outside of them because they 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 clear to come in there, and and uh, we've we've moved some birds right around that stuff. So it's that's kind of neat. All right, I got to back up for one second. How the hell does okay. the how the hell does a Michigan grouse cover get the name Line Kugels and not like Bells or Founders or something? When we pulled up to that spot, there was uh, two bottles. There's a little seasonal kind of creek ditch there. There was two bottles uncapped of Line Kugels beer sitting in, in the that somebody had left there in the creek. <laughs> well, there you go. And this was, and this was, uh, you know, this was long before the uh, craft beer explosion in Michigan. Sure. I mean, this was when there was, uh, uh, what's the summer beer? I've, uh, I've gone over, Oberon. No. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. No. Bell, Bell's Oberon. Oberon. The only craft beer you could get was Oberon. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's why that spot's called Lining Kugels. Well, now we know. All yeah. Right. Uh, so we talked about cover type. Oh, I wanted to say um, you brought up a good point because we're talking about flushing dogs here. But when you mentioned linear linear cover and hunting these edges, um, you know, when you got a pointing dog, it's it's nice. You could say it's nice to kind of have that in your back pocket. That hey, we're not finding birds. We're in crap cover. The dog might stretch out and maybe he'll go find a spot and bring us to some birds. But the flip right. side of that is. If you understand and you and you learn and study the cover and you understand it and you can find that linear cover that is 
great for flushing dogs. It's also great for pointy dogs, obviously, because if you if you work if you work those edges and you and you work where the birds are, your pointy dog doesn't have to go as far to find the birds. And at least from my experience and from a lot of people that I talk to with grouse. The closer your pointy dog is when he goes on point with a grouse, the way better chance you're going to have of actually putting that bird up and getting a shot at it. You know, I, I not to digress, two points here. Some of the linear cover I'm hunting, if there was a pointing dog on point in the middle of it, you would stand zero chance of killing that bird unless you had three hunters. One guy to flush the bird and one guy on each side of the linear cover to shoot it when it comes out. Yeah, so seen it. some of the li- yep. So some of the linear cover is advantageous to a flushing dog and yourself if you're hunting alone or a flushing dog and a partner because you're on the edge of it. You don't have to go into that alder thicket. You don't have to go into that honey impenetrable honeysuckle. You you know you don't you're not in that dogwood and. Uh, you know, the birds are coming out trying to evade the, the dog. Now, as far as pointing dogs without trying to get into trouble, I've hunted over really good pointing dogs that point birds at 120 yards, and I've hunted over really good pointing dogs that are 40 yards from their handler and are pointing birds 40 yards from their handler. The best way I can describe the really good pointing dogs I've hunted over is they're really good grouse dogs. And they, yeah. they tend to get, they, they tend to have birds stuck, um, where they're not pointing them at a super great distance, but they're not pointing them so close that they're sending the bird out either. Um, yeah. th- those are just yeah. my observations. I've been fortunate to hunt over, uh, uh, just about all the major grouse breeds that you'll see in the woods. Yep. So. Uh, all right. Uh, next up along that lines, cause you mentioned it there, um, you're sort of, I want to, I'm kind of coining this like the cover within the cover. And as you're moving through it, you know, our dogs, our dogs are, are in one spot and you're, you're analyzing the cover as you, as you move through it. You're looking for the thin spots. You're looking for the opportunities that you're going to have to get your gun up, mount it, swing it, shoot it. You're, and so, so talk about that, those thin areas that how you're trying to move through that. And then in the article you mentioned you're, you're looking ahead for escape routes for the birds. So touch Correct. on that too. So, so every time I go into a piece of cover, the things I'm thinking about are where are the birds going to be, where do they want to go, and how do I get between point A and point B? So if the bird's at point A and it wants to go to point B, which is its, its escape cover, I want to be somewhere in between there. So I'm always constantly thinking about that. And part of that is when, I, when I'm trying to intercept these birds, what's their behavior going to be like off the dog? What are the weather conditions? And how do I get in the easiest place to shoot? And so sometimes that's a deer trail. Sometimes that's an overgrown tote road. Sometimes that's just a simple lane in the woods. And you're trying to feel your way through the woods and walk through the woods. And you you take a new grouse hunter, and they're stumbling and tripping, and they're trying to keep up, and they're trying to wonder, how do you move through the woods so well? I'm always looking for a lane, some kind of lane, just something that makes my life of walking 
a little bit easier. And that way I have free range of motion to, uh, you know, mount, swing, and shoot, and shoot a gun. Sometimes it's not possible, but my goal is always to be, you know, in, in an area where I can move freely, as freely as possible. That also allows me to move at a, a rather rapid speed. And I know I, I have a uh, reputation, and my brother have a reputation, and you've been around some of that jabber uh, when we've been at some events together uh, for moving very, very quickly. It's just my personality and who I am and, and how we go. I do truly believe the more you put one foot in front of the other, the more, you know, the more ground you cover, the more birds you're going to find. And the less time you're going to waste in bad cover. So I'm always trying to find a lane in the woods to be able to move. One of the huge advantages of uh, flushing dogs is the ability to keep them in the best of the best cover all the time. And I don't mean offense to my friends with pointing dogs or anybody else with pointing dogs. But if I'm moving down a linear cover, if I'm hunting an edge where there's uh, dogwood or let's just say aspen meets alder, you find that in Minnesota all the time. You find it in the upper Great Lakes all the time. I can keep my dog, you know, 20 yards to the left and 20 yards to the right all the way down that edge. The pointing dog's instinct is not to just quest in that zone. The pointing dog's instinct is to, is to uh, not be in the fairway again, so to speak. It, it's just their instincts is to travel far and wide. And uh, even a closer working pointing dog is going to cover more ground. But, my, you know, I'm keeping my dog in that best of the best cover the whole time. And, and it, it is an advantage of the flushing dog. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a way more controlled controlled motion that dog is. I mean, your dogs. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how how your dogs run. I mean, are they? You have them on kind of a standard quartering pattern, or or how does that work? No, I actually learned from uh, the pointing dog folks, and and throughout the years that what uh, I don't want a yo-yo dog being a dog that runs straight out from me and straight back. Yeah. But a, a dog that quarters, like you read about in all the, all the books, isn't necessarily the best application all the time. And so I'm fortunate that my dog's patterns kind of evolve into almost objective hunting. And they tend to, they tend to figure out when they got a quarter and when they need to run from pine tree to pine tree, when they need to run from thorn apple to thorn apple. I'm convinced that they, they start to associate the smell of a pine tree with a grouse under it, or they start to associate uh, the smell of rotting apples with grouse being there to the point where, you know, you, you step into a berry patch and your dog starts getting birdie and it doesn't produce a bird. I think the dog just has been in, the, been in enough of the berry patches that they just expect a bird to be there. You know, it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of a false point. And so my absolute favorite pattern is a dog that actually runs a C, especially if I'm hunting a linear cover, a dog that would like start at my left hip and run out in a half moon pattern 
into the thick cover, come back to me, circle back, and keep doing these C's down, down the cover lane. That, I think, is one of the most deadly patterns. Uh, my dogs tend to run a lot of figure eights, and uh, some they, they move pretty quick. They're 45 to 55-pound, fairly hotly bred Labradors, not counting the family cat, the American Cocker, but... <laughs> and, and so they move, they move pretty quick. And then, um, I have some non-negotiables on obedience. So they sit remotely to the whistle. And, uh, but, it, but as puppies, you know, in, in their first puppy season, when they're anywhere from six months to 12 months, we don't really have any rules. My goal is for that bird, to, that dog to go out and learn where those birds live not necessarily to find them where I can shoot them. And then as we mature, we start to lay in a foundation of, all right, we got to work as a partnership if you want to retrieve. And so while that puppy at 10 months old might find a bird 80 yards away, I'm okay with that. But we start to evolve to the point where, hey, i got to be with you if, when you're going to find that bird. But when they're young, I just want them learning where birds live. I want them running from the thickest clump to the thickest clump, I want them slowing down in thick cover. So, and then, you know, if I see them get birdie, if I, if I just, I can almost sense when they're on a bird, even in the early season when the cover gets thicker, when the cover's thicker, you hear them breathing more, they're moving more brush, they're tightening up, and you hit them with a sit whistle, you move up, you kind of find your lane, you release them, and, and uh, hope for the best. Kill the ones you can kill, and uh, don't worry about the rest. Yeah, that's, that's that, cool. That, it's, it's very, I was going to uh, ask gonna, you, does that add up? Yeah. Yes, yeah, it does. And and I was going to kind of try to tie that together in that, you know, there's there's some clear differences between pointing dogs and flushing dogs. And, and this, this we weren't trying to make this a, a you know, a, a – a conversation about the two but but there's there's so many parallels too with the same you know at the end of the day they're both grouse dogs um you know the ones right. that we're talking about and it's and it's you know you talk about that early stage as a puppy and they've got to learn for themselves you got they've got to you got to put them in the cover over and over again and they've got to contact as many birds as possible and then you know at, once they develop that natural talent then we work them into the system that we want to work them into just like a just like a good young hockey player right fritz Right. Yeah, you got that right. We're, right now, we're building our team from the goaltender forward. So uh, if they can't if they can't score on us, we can't get beat. But uh, at some point, we got to learn to put the puck in the net too. And that is, uh, that's correct. Yeah, you know, a hard quartering dog. It feels like to me, and I trained one that way. And maybe as I get older and slower, I want I might want more of that. Uh, covers a lot of the same ground over and over again. And so I, I'd rather the dog run, I'd rather the dog hunt an efficient pattern for what the cover dictates. I don't necessarily so much know how to train that. I do train the in command where, you know, I can point to a piece of cover and, and or say in and they run, they run in and search and then they get enough contacts by, sheer luck or good planning or good cover, and then they, they just start to develop this on their own. So, um, so yeah, I, I, quartering doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all times. 
probably quartering in September makes the most sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I want to do. Uh, I want to do. We're getting close to the end here. We're yeah. wrapping up in a little bit here, but um, something else I've heard you and your brother talk about. You guys have. I, I don't know how strict you are to this, but. I've heard you talk about, you know, call it a 20-minute rule or something, where you guys will hop into yeah. a cover and you'll hunt it for 20 minutes, and if you don't move a bird, you're, you say to yourself, something's not right here, we got to switch it up, we got to find something different. I mean, talk about that and how you guys implement that. Right, so what we're essentially trying to do is pattern the birds. It's no different than if you're fishing and, and you know, for whatever reason – uh, the bass are in 12 feet of water today, or they're in three feet of water, or the steelhead are in the front of the runs, or they're in the tail of the runs. We're trying to pattern the birds. So what are they doing, and why are they doing it, and how do we repeat it? So if you go, we go into a cover, and if we don't move a bird in 20 minutes, we turn around and hightail it back to the truck and go try something else. And then we start to go, oh, all right, today we're finding them we're finding them in covers that have oaks or for whatever reason, or today we're finding them in covers that have more pine than typically we like to hunt. So now we have a long list of covers, or if we're on the road on a trip, we just start looking for those kind of spots. Hey, this spot looks a lot like the last spot we found birds in, or this spot looks a lot like the last spot we did find birds in, so we're not going in it. And we're trying to pattern the birds. And that pattern changes throughout the day. And so what are they in in the morning? What are they in kind of on that midday rest period where they seem to disappear and you got to grind them out? And then where are they going to be in that magic, you know, three to dark, four to dark, two to five, whatever that time slot is, where we can target them and what's our list of covers that we have and then let's start going through those in this area we've chosen to hunt today. So we're just trying to pattern the birds. But if if we don't find a bird in 20 minutes, we get out. Now, I'm going to contradict myself because in years like this, where there's not a lot of grouse, your options are to kind of grind on them till you find them. And so in good years, that 20 and out rule plays a lot more into our program than in the tough years where you just simply got to go out, walk them and the natural ability of birds when their numbers are low is to become scarce. And so you got to go find them. And, and that's just their protection of their species as a whole. And so, this, you know, the last couple of years, it's been more grind them and find them than it has been 20 and out. But I would say in a normal to an upper good years, if I don't find them in 20 minutes, I'm out, gone. I'm not going to, you know, why waste my time? Why waste my dog power? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, the dog power, is a, that's, a, that's a good point there. I think, you know, to a lot of people that it may sound like common sense, hey, if you're not finding birds, switch it up. But I think it's I think it's a good point to sort of hit on just because there are, you know, there are people that are, whether they're just getting into it or they're just not at the same point on the sort of the education curve. I mean, they just go to the same spot every time and, you know, maybe they have a good day here and there, but they can't, they're scratching their heads. I mean, don't, especially with grouse, do not be afraid to mix it up and try stuff because, I mean, it's been said a million times before, grouse are where you find them. And, I mean, every year 
that point gets proven to me more and more. And you're always trying to pay attention and trying to pattern them. But, yeah, absolutely, don't be afraid to, to mix it up and get out there and try stuff. And, you know, yeah, like you said, this year was – it was a – you just had to outwalk them on some of those days. I And I think there's four seasons within a grouse season. And I, I'm going to kind of leave one of them out. But I think there's the early season, which I'm going to call, you know – when the world is still green and the birds are still brooded up. And then I think there's the fall shuffle. I think there's a leaf drop period. And then I think what I'm going to call bare November, which can include plenty of October on some years where all the leaves are down. The world is not green anymore. And I have early season covers. I have shuffle covers where I start hunting Lots of islands, lots of corridors, lots of places that birds can move, non-typical stuff, non-saw habitat. Leaf drop can be really challenging as the birds get really jumpy. Their kind of environment is changing for the first time in their life. And then the greatest season of all is that bare November. And, and like I said, it can include, include parts of October, but that's when you get the best dog work and you get the best shooting and you really find out what kind of dog you have. And you, you know, you, you can keep birds on the ground better. And, you know, so I think there's four seasons. It's developing a long list of covers. I, I rarely go back into my September covers after September. Rarely do I ever go back to them. I move on to my October and November covers. I've never been one to buy into the fact that a grouse lives in uh, 40 acres. I, I, I just, you know, they might live in a bigger landscape, or if it's 40 isolated acres, they might live in it. But if there's good landscape habitat, I think they move around more than maybe we realize. That's at least been my experience because, you know, if I move 15 birds in a cover in September and I go back there in November and don't move any, where'd they all go? Did they all get shot? Did they all get eaten? Did they all shuffle out? Or is there better suited November habitat, you know, a quarter mile, a half mile, a mile away that they've worked their way to? Yep. And yep, how do you find how do you find those highways when they're when they're moving or shuffling or, you know, transitioning? And and hunt those highways when they're transitioning. Yep, absolutely. That's that's the stuff that I know keeps uh, keeps guys like you and me coming back for sure. Um, all right, before we wrap it up here, I want to uh, you know we we talked a lot about public lands earlier in the episode, and uh, you know so we know you're uh, we know you're a public land supporter as am I, and and I think most upland bird hunters are. But I I, I know from 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 uh, you know getting to know you over the last couple of years, you're you're very uh, conservation minded, and and uh, and you're you're passionate about giving back to the resource and the habitat. So just touch a little bit on sort of what drives that, you know, for you to, to make sure you're paying it forward for the next generation of hunters. Well, without a, without a user, we have no, we have no need for management. And so if we don't have users, what incentive is there? And I'm in the tourism business as a career so some of this comes from that. But if we don't have users, what is the incentive to manage a resource? 
we don't need grouse management if we don't have grouse hunters that want to hunt them. They, yeah. they, you know, they don't offer any economic benefit outside of tourism. And uh, so I'm very passionate. I was taught at a very young age that if you're going to use a resource, you need to give back to it. And uh, I've been very fortunate. Not only that, outside of supporting the Rough Grouse Society and other conservation organizations, outside of trying to introduce new people to the sport, there's a great social aspect to being a part of these conservation clubs. I can talk grouse hunting 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. I love it. It's, it's, I think about it every day of the year in one fashion or another. I'm depressed at the end of the grouse season because it's over. And it's a great way to meet like-minded people and meet friends and, and really enjoy the camaraderie aspects of what I think is the most challenging uh, upland game hunting, you know, I've ever experienced. And so I'm very passionate about it. I'm passionate about hunter recruitment. I'm passionate about taking people. Um, I did a lot more of it when I was younger. I'm kind of in a phase of my career and in my parent life where I don't get to do as much of it anymore, but that'll come back around where I get to do lots of it. It's, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm sharing a lot of, uh, worn out boot leather and gasoline with you folks here today is that, you know, if we can get more hunters, we can get more management and, and hunter numbers are declining. Everything indicates that. And, and, and it might not feel like it. People say, Oh, the woods are crowded. Uh, a friend of mine pointed this out the other day. He said, you know, the woods feel more crowded, even though there's less grouse hunters because there's, uh, you know, sort of less habitat or uh, there's not the statewide habitat in the upper Great Lakes we used to have. Uh, you know, there's, there's not grouse in the driftless area anymore. There's, there's not grouse in, in Ohio and Indiana and parts of uh, the Appalachians that they used to have, Kentucky. And so now you've got out-of-staters coming here and, and, but, I do think that's changing. There's more and more cutting going on in the landscape. So while while hunting numbers are declining, it might feel more crowded. That's just a function of cover evaporating in certain areas of certain states. You know, southern Michigan used to have a lot more grouse when there was farmlands that wouldn't support crops that were reverting. Well, those those that reverting cropland in southern Michigan, the, the farmer's 40 out back that used to hold grouse ran up against a creek that ran to the next farmer's 40. That's big, mature woods now. And so the guys that used to be able to hunt that, maybe they're hunting up north now and you feel like it's more crowded. But I, I don't have a problem finding a place to hunt. And, you know, a lot of times I smile when I see a lot of hunters because I know that there's a future for the resource. There's a future for you know, if my kids and grouse hunting's provided so much mental health and escape and relief for me that uh, I hope other people can enjoy that aspect of the sport too. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I mean, it's it's uh, you know you certainly certainly you love to find you love to find your own spots and carve out your own little niche out in the grouse woods and and you know there you can see other hunters and. And we deal with those kind of things, but again, yeah, you got to try to remind yourself. I mean, if if there's not people out in the woods using it, 
the resource is not going to get managed the way that we need it to. So, you know, we need all the help that we can get, especially in, in today's day and age. And, and, uh, it's a great thing. And I, you know, I, I appreciate, appreciate what you do for conservation and, uh, and, uh, I hope others are doing the same, uh, cause it's important. So. Yeah. And, and I will add a, I will add a little, a little snippet that if, if someone's generous and I had mentors and mentors are immensely important. If someone's generous enough to take you to their spots and introduce you to it, give them the common courtesy of not going back or not taking other people without at least having a conversation with them. Uh, those spots are hard-earned and, and boot leather and gasoline and, uh, you know, walking them and figuring them out when to be there, why you're there, what time of the year to be there. Just learn from those spots and go find your own spots that look similar or have a real honest conversation with your host. Hey, do you mind if I come back here? Because everybody's time's valuable. Everybody's time means the same. I know it's all public land, but it's just kind of the unwritten rule of hunting that, you know, you don't go back without somebody's permission. You don't take anyone else. Be respectful of that person's time and their generosity to take you. And, and go go forge your own path. The we really all hunt. You know, the the a grouse hunt's over the millisecond you pull the trigger and that bird falls out of the sky. That's pretty anticlimactic. It's everything that leads up to the hunt, from cleaning your gun and training your dog and having the time off and budgeting and planning to be there and and to have the ability to walk on public land that we all own and pursue these great game birds, the actual act of killing is anticlimactic. I mean, that's, you know, I kill to have hunted, and I don't apologize for killing birds. I, I like to kill a lot of them. I like to eat them, and, it, and it, it's a reward for the dog, and it kind of culminates. But the real hunt, the real thing that we're passionate about is the journey to that second where we pull the trigger, where everything comes together with the dog, in the cover and in the preparation and the scouting, that's what we all love about it. At least that's what I love about it. You know, it's no different than why I don't shoot birds off the ground or out of trees. You you know, chicken's cheaper. (laughs) Yeah, that is, uh, that is very well said, Fritz. Uh, I'm glad you, glad you mentioned that piece about, you know, kind of the etiquette. We could have another conversation entirely about that, but, uh, those were, those were, uh, true words and, uh, people should, people should absolutely, uh, take those in. But, but, uh, on that note, uh, the, the, the beauty and the, and the pursuit of the bird, uh, I think that's a, that's a good spot to wrap this up. I, I really appreciate having, having you on the show, Fritz. It was, uh, it was a pleasure and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch and, and best of luck, uh, for hockey season now, now that you guys are covered up in snow. There you go. You know, Nick, and as you know, the uh, invitation's always open if you find your way over here and uh, we can go do the flusher shuffle together. That would be, that would be a blast. And, uh, you know, my, uh, my grouse camp's kind of like halfway in between you and, uh, your regular destination in Minnesota. So maybe next, uh, next right. time we'll have to plant something. Sounds like a plan. Have a great night. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Fritz. Take care. Thanks, Nick. Hey, everybody. Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Just wanted to take a second to thank you again for listening to this episode of the show. 
and remind you that, as always, we are brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Krause Camp. As always, we appreciate your feedback. Please don't hesitate to contact us via projectupland.com or by emailing me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.